0: Welcome to the Wellness Guys Show with Wellness Experts Dr. Damien Kristoff and Dr. Brett Hill.
1: Hey Brett. Hey Damo. What are you working on at the moment, mate? Well I'm working on a few things, Damo. I'm writing a book, but what I've just finished working on is my Art of Natural Running e course. Ah. And I'm really excited about it. So, you know, I've been going around Australia doing this uh, this live course where I was teaching people how to run naturally and uh And what I realized was that I couldn't get around to everybody uh, and that it was hard to get around to everybody all around Australia and even outside of Australia, people who wanted to learn about how to run naturally and how to run more easily, how to make it more fun, and how to get less injuries, and so I decided to put it all together into a e-course, which is about five and a half hours worth of video content. Oh, far out. That's unbelievable. Where do people find it? So they can find it at theartofnaturalrunning.com, and they'll be able to hear not just from me, but from experts like Danny Dreyer from Chi Running. We've got Kim Morrison. We've got Kelly Starrett from Mobility Ward, and we've even got a guy called The Barefoot Podiatrist, who's my favorite. Good bloke. Yeah, so theartofnaturalrunning.com. Hey, this is David Christoph. And this is Brett Hill. brett how are you, young man? I'm good, mate. I'm good. I'm excited about today's interview because I think it's such an important topic. You and I, both as parents, very important topic for us to think about and consider. And some of the information shared today absolutely blew me away. Look, this guy, I know I came back from a seminar in New
0: Zealand, the New Zealand uh Chiropractors Association AGM and I spoke at that but this bloke spoke of that and blew people's heads apart with the information so Wayne Warburton is a senior lecturer at um, at Macquarie University is the de- Deputy Director of Children and Family Research Centre so he knows his stuff he's got a PhD in psychology um, he's, he's got honours degrees he's got all kinds of things you know going on But he's also not only, you know, working in the research component, but he's also a registered psychologist and has a strong research interest in the fields of aggressive behavior, media psychology, parenting, homelessness, and financial vulnerability. And when he spoke in New Zealand, he spoke about the impact of screen time, recreational screen time on the young and developing brain so we're talking kids before eight kids after eight and then adolescence and he spoke about the um the significant impact of violence and we'll we'll do another podcast with him on violent games and how how fast kids are growing up and all that sort of stuff but this particular podcast um talks to the impact of recreational screen time the amount of screen time that kids are having on the development of their brain and the long-term implication of that
1: Yeah, I love it, Domo. And it's from my old alumni, Domo, Macquarie University. So it's good to see that there's some great neurological research happening at Macquarie University. And uh, I'd love to see them do some more and start looking into the impact of the posture and the amount that they sit and the impact of their spine and nervous system on their brains and how that might impact on this topic too. So. Hopefully, Wayne might get in touch with the Cairo department there and do even more study as well. But there's some great stuff to share today nonetheless. Oh, you might have planted some seeds there, Brett. You never know.
0: Now, yes. people will notice that in the show notes there's links to all kinds of different things, um, and they'll be available on our website if you go to thewellnessguys.com. Um, you are able to find um, some downloads, so 10 Tips for Healthy Game Use, um there's a reference there for the NWIRA uh, that'll give you uh, resources if you feel that you need a bit of support because this is a very, very confronting podcast. Um, you might be shocked. Um, some of the information in here may not be suitable for uh, very young listeners. So um, parents, just think about you know what you're hearing here and what your kids are going to be hearing here because, Some of the information is quite confronting, and you may want to look for some extra support or some extra help at the end of the podcast, and we've got those resources on the wellnessguys.com webpage, so go check all that out. Wayne Warburton, welcome to The Wellness Guys Show. Wayne, I saw you in New Zealand, and you did an amazing presentation. I sat there spellbound, and you reeled off data that blew my mind and i know that today when we ask you questions and we get stuck into all of this we'll uh, we'll have people pulling their car over stopping their run pulling their bike over getting their kids to sit down and listen to this because i think The information and content you've got to share with us should blow people's minds. Wayne, there's a lot of people that are really um, worried about their children, worried about their adolescence and screen time. Is it really a big issue or are we just, you know, getting a little bit over panicked, a little bit too sensitive?
2: I hate the word panic because the people who don't like us talking about it um, keep talking about this thing called moral panic where they say everybody's in a panic about it and it's You know, it's just old-fashioned people not keeping up with technology. I don't think anybody's panicking. Um, But what we are finding is that screens are a really big part of our life and our ability as parents and professionals to work with children hasn't kept up with the problems that have arisen with um, screen use, particularly since 2010-ish, when... Um, people started to get internet-connected eye devices and the the amount of time spent on screens really increased for kids and particularly for young kids. Um, And so the sorts of things that we're seeing today, nobody probably thought about 10 years ago, we really didn't think the screens would be as bigger influencing kids' lives as they have become and are becoming and are continuing to become. (laughs)
0: Sorry for the interruption there, guys. Uh, Wayne had to take a little phone call. So we'll just will, we'll have a little pause and then we'll come into it. You'll hear Brett speak and uh, it all becomes clear again in a second. Sorry about that.
1: So, Wayne, I think this can be a bit of a conundrum for parents when it comes to screen time because on one hand, parents are seeing this research come out about screen time and, and how it can be challenging for kids and they want to... Decrease it as much as they can, maybe even eliminate it entirely from their kids' lives. But, but on the other hand, you know, we're constantly seeing stuff in the media about how important it's going to be in the future from a jobs perspective to know how to use a computer and all these digital online jobs, how big a percentage of the market they're going to be. And so parents aren't really sure what the best thing to do for their kids are. You know, how do, how do parents navigate this sort of conflicting uh, advice they're getting around screen time?
2: Look, I think the best way parents can manage it is to think about it like food. Like nobody should say would say that you should eliminate food, it's you know it's normal to eat, but eating can get out of whack and when it does things kind of go wrong and I think media is like food for your brain, right? Your brain wires up every second of every day in response to what you experience. And so the things that you spend your life doing have a big, big impact on the way you think and the way you feel and the way you um, um, behave, and, and on the way your brain develops, for that matter. And so, what you're looking for is this kind of healthy amount, this healthy development. And media has this potential to be a really wonderful thing in kids' lives because it opens up the world to them, makes, allows them to connect to all sorts of knowledge and all sorts of people, and to have friendships with people on the other side of the world that are, you know, quite deep and rich. But on the other side, when it gets out of whack, then you start to see problems. And so just like with food, we're looking for a healthy media diet that finds this middle ground where you get the best out of it and you don't get the worst out of it. And for me, a healthy media diet is just like a healthy food diet. You're looking at three key things, the content, the amount, and whether it's right at the age. In terms of content, most people who work in the area think, look, in terms of recreational screen media, which is screen media just for the just for fun, about two two hours preferably, but you know, around two to three hours, that's kind of moderate use and that's okay. Once it starts kind of getting above that three hour mark, then you're starting to see it um, being at the expense of other important things in a child's life about per day. Is that per day? day per day. And and so that's what you'd be aiming for for a moderate amount. In terms of the content it's just like food. Nobody would say never eat chocolate, but you don't want to eat 2 kilos a day. And it's the same with media. What you want is more of the stuff that you know is good for you developmentally, that's modeling pro social behavior, that's educational, that's taking you to good places, and less of the stuff that is taking you to places that you don't want to be that more might be more antisocial or um, model poor behavior or so on. And the third thing is that it has to be right at the right age. You know, if you have full cream milk, it's great. If you're two years old and you've got developing bones, but if you're 90 years old and your arteries are 90% occluded, then obviously full cream milk's not the right thing. And with media, kids are frightened of and and they approach things differently at different ages. So, you know, younger kids are scared of the obvious characteristics of things, like um, if someone looks scary, even if an adult would say, actually, that's a nice person. If it's scary, a little kid would just be frightened of it and, and and not be able to see past that all the kids are more frightened of things that um, they can realistically see happening to them and their family so they might see a school shooting or they might see a flood or a um, fire on television and see a family like their family or kids like them and then that's what scares them because they could realistically imagine it happening to themselves if you aim for this basic food diet approach right amounts. More of the good stuff, less of the not-so-good not, good, not, not so good stuff, and just be aware of, you know, where is my child at developmentally and what's going to be best at their age? If you look at those three things, then you've got a much better chance of getting the best out of screen media and, you know, dodging some of the um, less attractive effects.
0: Wayne, um, that kind of paints a solution or at least some kind of um, an approach to moderating what, I suppose, we haven't yet painted it, is the problem. but. I remember when you were talking in New Zealand, you spoke about age-appropriate use, which you just did then briefly, but you said from zero through to eight, you know, the kids' brains are are wired. If they think something's scary, then it is scary. Um, Then from eight onwards, um, if they see that it could happen, it's happened to somebody else, it could happen to them. And and I think that, that that's a really nice model and a nice sort of age frame for people to consider. But we're seeing that children are playing games in recreation. We have to, you know, point out that this is recreation screen time that's the biggest concern because obviously learning's taken an online or a screen approach. You know, kids are taking iPads to school and parents are concerned about that, but kids are also using their iPad or the computer at home. We're not talking about education screen time. We're talking about recreational screen time here. Um, Kids are playing Fortnite. and kids are playing um, games that would appear to be age inappropriate and i think that's the concern that we're raising isn't it well
2: look, there's a problem i mean just to give you one example grand theft auto is a game that's you know reasonably violent and it's um, particularly the way women are portrayed in the game is not particularly wonderful and yet in the u.s in the last study 56 percent of kids over the age of eight played that now i don't know if how you would sit down with an eight-year-old and explain why you would want to murder a prostitute to get your money back or whatever he might be doing in the game. And so, you know, what we find is that kids have more and more access to more and more extreme material at a younger age because kids are curious and because it's easy. Uh, And, you know, pornography is another area where we're seeing lots of young kids, Um, kids who might have, you know, 20 years ago had a Playboy stuck under the bed and mum kind of knew about it but turned a blind eye and nobody's particularly worried about it. Now you see those kind of kids at 10 or 11 or 12 but because they can access all sorts of pornography and quite extreme pornography at an early age, it's a lot more difficult for a kid who's 10 or 11 to understand why someone's being hit or cut or whatever um, during sex and to make sense of that. And they often find that quite frightening and arousing at the same time and and very difficult to manage developmentally. And it's certainly not helping them to have normal and healthy relationships.
1: I'm blown away. I I mean, the 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 percentages percentages. there, 56% of kids from eight years old playing Grand Theft Auto is phenomenal. So what are we seeing, Wayne? Like, What is this doing to these kids' brains? And as you said, what is it doing to their relationships?
2: Look, in terms of what's happening in the brains, in terms of violent media, there are three really clear things we know about violent media in terms of what happens inside a child's brain. Um, And there's a lot of studies that show it. The first thing is that the part of the brain in which we manage our emotions and in which we um, control our impulses and which we think through the consequences of things is the prefrontal cortex, which is um, part of the cortex at the front of the brain. And when people are playing violent games or watching other violent media for that matter, we see quite markedly reduced activity in the prefrontal cortex, which is the part of the brain you know that has a higher functions, isn't, isn't working nearly as well. At the same time, you have activation in the limbic system, that kind of emotional system in the middle of the brain where you have fight or flight and all of the things that kind of impels to action without thinking things through is, is quite active. And the third thing you see is desensitization to the suffering of others. And there's lots and lots of studies showing that now, that in the short term, you know, even after maybe 10 or 15 minutes of seeing, you know, some violent material, you start to already become desensitized to the suffering of other people. And then people who have a lot of exposure to violent media, um, when they see um, the suffering of others, they tend to have a less emotional response, or they tend to become desensitized in the long term as well. So all of those things, you know, are quite um readily shown in the brain. And of course when you transfer it to what does it mean in terms of behaviour? It means, so, you know, if a kid's playing a violent game and mum comes along and says, Hey, stop playing that game, you know, if we if we don't want you to do it the part of the brain that controls that kind of more pro-social behavior is mostly turn off so instead of having a normal conversation or having the sort of conversation you might expect to have with your child you might get a tantrum or some aggressive behavior or some anger or something like that because the part of the brain we normally manage that is is not working as strongly and then of course the other way it might play out is you know if you then had this situation where that would require empathy or care for another person you would find that you know for a period of time afterwards that's not working as well for that child
0: it's um it's quite concerning and I recall you saying that um, a man's brain or a boy's brain isn't fully developed to some late stage now Probably because my brain still hasn't fully developed. I can't quite recall that. But it, I, recall, I it's something about 30, 30 years or something, 30 years old. Is that
2: right? Yeah, look, so the prefrontal cortex is the last part of the brain to develop. Um, and we know that in men, that's probably not fully developed till the early, early 30s now um, and in women in, in the late 20s. Right. But what we... Want for kids, because they don't have a fully developed prefrontal cortex, is they have as much of a functioning as possible to help them kind of navigate that, navigate those teenage years when you're reward-seeking and you're wanting to do things and it's all go, go, go. You know, you want as much of that frontal lobe to kind of kick in and say, hey, that's not a good idea, maybe don't do that or whatever, just, you know, for the child's protection and to keep pushing them in the direction that is going to be most helpful for them. I think, other the reason why I raised that, Wayne,
0: is... The concern for me is that I see kids that are, say, let's say 17 years old or 18 years old and they're finding games that are becoming quite addictive, you know. So, um, yes, there was Minecraft and, you know, people justified that because it was, you know, it's kind of like Lego but it's on a computer and, you know, I I heard all those justifications. I didn't really buy it but now we've got Fortnite which appears to be very, very addictive and I'm aware of some 17-year-olds who are doing um, Year 12, VCE. And they're spending four, five, six hours at a time on the weekends playing Fortnite, not realizing that that much time has actually gone past. And I suppose that's a real concern for me because um, those kids are actually about to get out and um, and, and move into um, university life or professional life and. And, and so I think that's quite concerning. Unfortunately, because my son doesn't play Fortnite, uh, which is really good, um, so I'm putting that out there. But I know that there are other, other kids, and I see them in my practice, that um, are actually playing those sorts of games. What is this setting up for these kids? Is it a short-term memory thing? Is it an aggression thing? What's actually happening there?
2: Okay, well, I mean, Fortnite is um, very popular with younger kids, so the, the demographics seems to be really... I'm hooked into it at the moment is probably, um, you know, in years three, four, five and six at primary school and maybe the early years of high school, it's very common. Um, You do see some older kids play it, but it seems to have really been taken up by um, older primary and younger um, high school kids in much the way that Minecraft was taken up a few years ago. I'm not entirely sure what's so attractive about it. having seen seen quite a bit of it now. Um, but for some kids they find it very very attractive, very very difficult to stop playing and um, and, and to be honest I don't know, but I never understood what, what it was about Minecraft either because it was like Lego with really terrible graphics and, and I know the guy that made it was, I think was a bit <laughs> bewildered by how successful it was. But I think it's a matter of a matter of balance and so What we're wanting for kids is for them to spend as much time with normal activity as they're spending indoors on screens. And one of the problems is that when you start playing a game that you spend a lot of time on, then it comes at the expense of other things like sleep, um, outside kicking a ball, being with friends, um, face to face, and so on. And the key for human beings is that we, we actually need real contact, not just virtual contact. And all of this is from biology. It's not from psychology. If we, if we, Touch another person then hormones like oxytocin are released and our body responds in a very strong way so it helps our immune system to keep healthy it stops inflammation within our body it um, keeps our cardiovascular system working better we actually physically need to be in the presence of other people to be physically touching other people to be seeing other people's body language not on a screen but face to face biologically because that's what we're evolved to do. And one of the problems happens when you spend so much time in the virtual world that you neglect that crucial face-to-face time and that crucial physical contact in the real world. And if you do that, you, you pay a bi- biological price, you pay a price for your posture and stuff as well because there's a physical cost to spending a lot of time on the screen and, and you'd be able to tell people a lot more about that than, than I could. But, you know, there's there's this, and and there's a cost to you gross motor skills. What we're seeing is a lot of kids who spend a lot of time on screens. They have great fine motor skills, but the expense of gross motor skills, which, which are diminished, sometimes they might have poor finger strength because they're not actually doing things that give themselves finger strength and so on. So there's a cost if you're not out in the real world doing things with real people, not hanging out with your friends, not, you know, doing stuff in the fresh air. And what you want, no one's saying you can't spend some time in front of screens, but what you need to do is to balance it out with physical exercise, physical contact, touching and playing with and seeing other people and having that kind of life that you know we're evolved to have.
1: Yeah, I love that, Wayne. And obviously, we do see the physical side of it. And obviously, being chiropractors, we really understand the neurological side of that as well, of just how important that function of your spine and your nervous system is. And that feedback that goes back to your brain in terms of stimulation of your brain, which is really important as well. But I was interested in something you mentioned earlier, one which is you said you, you were talking about the effects of this and you said for a period of time. So uh, is, are the effects of you know, playing these particular games, are they only short-lived or is there a cumulative effect of playing these games over a longer period of time that has a longer term ramifications in terms of the brain and the nervous system?
2: Okay, that's a complex question to answer, and I'll, I'll try not to answer it in a complex way. <laughs> um, in terms of violent media, we know that there are long-term consequences. So, if you play a lot of violent media, you know the short-term consequences are that you just have a, an increased likelihood of mild aggression for maybe ten or fifteen minutes afterwards. It's really kind of small effect, but we have a lot of what we call longitudinal studies, which follow people over several years. One that's followed people over you know forty or fifty years and there's you know um i think of 24 studies that have followed people's media use or video game use um, over a period of time and then looked at how their behaviors changed over time and the effects definitely seem to be cumulative so that if you play have a lot of exposure to violent media you tend to become a bit more aggressive in everyday life so there's this kind of cumulative effect in terms of screens generally we have some people who just seem to Develop something that looks like an addiction to it. Now, I'm very reluctant to call it an addiction for kids. It's very difficult to diagnose something as being a true addiction in children but we see about one to two percent of kids who spend a lot of time in front of screens where where it's quite pathological. It's really having such a severe impact on their life that they really need some treatment or or it's or it's going to have a very big cost to them and we see about 10% of kids have what we would think of as problematic use where the amount of time they spend on a screen has an impact on a really important part of their life like their schoolwork, their relationships, um, their mental health and so on. When you look at the 1% 1 to 2% who have the really severe problem um, then you start to see over the long term significant changes, you see changes in the physical structure of the brain. So you see an atrophy and by atrophy I mean a loss of brain tissue in these key um, regions like the frontal lobe where you have this prefrontal cortex, there's atrophy there in the striatum which is part of the reward system and the loss of tissue in the striatum is linked with more impulsivity and sensation-seeking and difficulty suppressing antisocial impulses. You see Um, an atrophy in the insular cortex where we see the development of empathy and pro behaviour and when you have problems there then you have difficulties in relationships and and in responding to people in an empathic way so you see these structural changes in the brain and then you see these functional changes in the brain where the reward circuitry changes in a similar way to to what you would see in drug dependence. Um, We know that there's um, an increase in dopamine um, when those people are in front of a screen and they start to crave being in front of a screen. They find it difficult when they're not in front of a screen. When they're in front of a screen, they have reduced attention, um, so they, they tend to have developing attention deficits, um, less executive function, so less of that ability to problem solve and think things through and, and control their impulses and possibly a reduction in empathy as well. So we see these 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 kind of changes in that one or two percent, and and perhaps to a lesser extent in, in the ten percent who have a problem, and you know that is a cumulative effect where spending a lot of time in front of the screen and setting up that that system in the body where you start to want it more and more, that is uh, you know a reasonable long term change that becomes more and more difficult to treat and manage as you as you get older, and. You know when it's extreme we're talking about quite extreme you know there are a number of reported deaths so kids who have spent you know several days in front of a screen they might be playing an online game or whatever but there's a high level of arousal their body is cranking out you know things like adrenaline and all of these stress hormones because you know they're playing this arousing game or doing something that's stimulating them at the same time they're not getting adequate nutrition and adequate electrolytes to keep their heart beating and eventually they you know die of a heart attack or whatever we see other kids who you know we would think of as shut in who literally just don't leave their rooms and you know i you know, I had a mum come to me whose who's son had not left his room, not been outside the door of that room for eight years. Oh, and he'd man. spent that entire time in front of a screen in the room. So, you know, when we talk about the cumulative effect and the long-term effect, for that extreme end, it's actually quite quite extreme and, try, and quite concerning. And, and really, there's some sort of um, attention needed to the problem, some sort of intervention needed, or it can, you know, spiral out of control and become, you know, real... Um, difficulty for that child and, and sometimes the tragic consequences.
0: Absolutely. I think there's a few big words in there, deaths, you know, reported deaths. I think it's a big thing that, you know, obviously that's not everybody, but that's a small percentage Amazing. of it possible. But then there's also that social isolation. Um, I often joke about um, this thing, Wayne, called synaptic pruning. You know, when teenagers go through a very, you know, almost dumb, they're almost absent, like things just aren't there, their brains are kind of trimming down to what's important. And you raise a point there before, if you if you don't use it, you lose it. So in other words, if you're not using particular centers of the brain um, that might be associated with, you know, touch and connection and emotion and um, empathy and all those sort of, if you don't use those parts, then you'll trim them. You'll lose them much the same as, say, if you don't practice your basketball, you don't practice kicking the footy, or you don't, you know, practice throwing a, a cricket ball. If you're not practicing it, you'll lose those skills. Once you've lost, or once you've done a bit of synaptic pruning, how difficult is it to repair the brain? How hard is it to get things back to where they probably should be? You know, people miss developmental phases. Is it difficult to get it back to where it should be?
2: Okay, well, again, a, a complex answer um, <laughs> would probably be required. But it dep- the, the short answer is it depends on how much the damage is. So if you look at the brain of a Romanian orphan, for example, who have been held in isolation for, for many years, you find whole parts of the brain, whole parts of the temporal lobe, you know, almost entirely missing in those kids. And there's no amount of neuroplasticity and, and neural repair that can kind of fix that, that, that difficulty. But most kids don't end up with damage anywhere near that problem. And what you mostly find is that if you start moving things in the right direction because the brain is plastic and rewiring every second of every day, as we said, yeah, you know, plasticity makes it possible to move forward, to change things, to fix things, to 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 make things better, and that's what as psychologists, you know, we try to do. We have, you know, we'll often see six months down the track. In fact, I was just reading a case study of of this um, of this screen addicted child in the UK, and they saw marked changes after four weeks. Um, you know, and, and changes continued for for more weeks after that. And what you would typically find is that if you go down this track, you see um, some changes after about 24 hours, you start to see you know more long-term changes after probably four to six weeks and six months down the track, you'll often see a completely different kid. You know, a kid who's kind of rebuilt their life around things that happened in the real world rather than the virtual world and who are very happy in that place.
1: So, Wayne, what's the role for parents in this? Because obviously that's what they would probably, I assume, want for their children. And, you know, when you talk about, I guess, a child who's been in his room for eight years, you know, there has to, you know, I'm assuming there's probably some underlying issues there, whether they're developmental or functional neurological or maybe even psychological issues that may be involved in that situation. But at the same time, there has to be a fair degree of enabling from a parent in order for a child to be able to, Not leave their room for eight years. Uh, And so, how do parents sort of navigate this, you know, support their children, you know, allow them to have maybe some time on the screen, as you said, maybe some appropriate time on the screen, but also set clear boundaries and try and help, uh, you know, re engage their kids with the outside world as well. You know, how do parents navigate this and and what is the role of the parent as opposed to the child in navigating this?
2: Okay, well, the first thing I want to say is I understand parents who feel helpless and and the parent. That I spoke to with the kid had been in the room for a long, long time. felt very helpless, and I, my first question was, you know, if it was me, I would have stopped bringing their meals, <laughs> you know. But you know, her fear, I think, was that if she stopped doing that, the child would just commit suicide, or you know, there'd be some sort of horrific consequence. And I don't think that that particular parent felt empowered. To know how to intervene in a way that was, you know, going to sort things out without there being some sort of horrible consequence, and most lots of parents I speak to, they they actually do feel disempowered. They they feel like it's such a big issue that they just it's just too hard to manage it because it's not just you, but it's your kids' friends and the peer group and you know like society is infused with digital media isn't it and you can't just pull out of it so how do, how do you kind of manage it but you know and manage your child's friends wanting to be involved and where they go and stuff like that and for me i think there are a few key things that we can look at and i'll just i'll just go through them the first thing is Kids from a young age understand a healthy food diet. My my daughter at the age of five, Healthy Harold came to her school and she understood sometimes foods, all the time foods, you know, all of that sort of stuff. And even at five, she kind of had this idea about, you know, what a healthy diet looks like. And I think with kids from a young age, it's helpful for a parent to say to them, you know, you know your brain wise up in response to what you experience and just like it's good to have a healthy food diet and have lots of exercise it's also important to kind of be aware of the sorts of things that you experience and the sort of media that you go to because you want that to be healthy too and what you want is more of the good stuff and less of the not so good stuff you want to as parents I think talk with kids about putting some boundaries I know it's uncool in the modern era to talk about um, putting boundaries about what your kids can do but For me, as a psychologist, I actually think it's healthy. Often kids, when they're acting out, they're actually telling you, put a boundary around me, you know? I'm not too sure where my boundaries are, you need to tell me. And I think, as parents, we can say to our kids, you know, a healthy media use is, you know, two to three hours a day. I don't care how you spend it. Like, if you want to binge for eight hours on Saturday and have not much during the week, that's absolutely fine by me. but you know we want to kind of keep this under control because it's better for you and, and engage the kid in that, um, in that dialogue about managing their own life and you know having some say in, in the sort of media diet that they're going to do it. And then a lot, in terms of what's appropriate, the age a lot will fall to parents, of course having a screen free time before bed I think is really crucial that's really hard now it used to be just don't have a telly in the bedroom those those days are long long gone because there's probably you know eight devices in the house that you could connect to the internet with and so on that would you know easily slip under the covers or the pillow one thing that lots of houses are doing successfully is that at bedtime all the devices go in the basket all the iPads all the tablets all the phones everything goes in a basket of bed and then you can pick it up in the morning when you get up but when it's bedtime you don't have the devices because we know that they really interfere with sleep. There's a lot of studies showing that active parental monitoring really makes a big difference. So there's one study from Singapore that one of my friends, Doug Gentile, did. they involved um, most school kids in, in Singapore. And what they found is that the more a parent actively monitored what their child was doing, the more sleep the kid got, the better the child's school performance, the more pro social behaviour. There was a decrease in body mass index, there was a decrease in aggressive behaviour, and there were all these kind of flow on effects from just actively monitoring what your kids did. Now I understand why parents find it hard to monitor because in this kind of modern era we you know it's two incomes to just pay the rent or pay the mortgage and everyone's busy and screen actually gives you that time that you need to to do the washing and make the dinner and stuff. You know, I understand why it's kind of down the list. But I, you know, my own view is that I think as parents, we probably need to bring monitoring screen use a bit up the list just because it's such a big influence on in our kids' lives because kids, the modern teenager spends more time in front of a screen. The last study showed 6 hours and 40 minutes a day. Than they do with their teachers with their friends with their parents right it's a big influence and so helping that child to manage and being involved i think should go up the list aim for a lot more physical time and sitting time you know if your child's spending two or three hours a day on a screen then you know try and balance it out with you know, two or three hours outside kicking a ball around and doing other stuff so that you kind of have this balance to what's happening, you know, a balance between the physical and the virtual. Take a break every 30 minutes if you're on a game. You know, try and teach your kid good posture and, and, and what good posture looks like in front of the screen. Avoid repetitive movements. And probably most importantly, you know, model good use. You know, parents, kids watch their parents' digital media use very, very closely and they get quite rightly annoyed when parents are saying you know you shouldn't be on the screen so much and every time they turn around their parent is you know on the phone or answering an email or on social media and kind of half ignoring them while they're there you know we we kind of need to model good digital use ourselves.
0: They're all amazing suggestions and great information I I suppose it brings the responsibility back to actually being a parent rather than trying to be your your children's best mates which I think um, a lot of parents try to do as well so I think um, this this has been one of the great interviews, Wayne, and thank you so much for um, giving your time to us on the Wellness Guys Show. We look forward to involving you in more than what we do, or more with what we do uh, in the future, and hopefully getting you to Melbourne and getting you to do some seminars down here as well. Um, Your content is is desperately needed uh, in Australia, and I think that um, parents and kids will benefit from listening to this podcast. So, thank you so much for your time, Wayne.
2: Thanks, Damien. Thanks for having It's been an absolute joy.